0: All right, friends. So, welcome to the next episode of Professional Development, the podcast where teachers talk about teaching. Uh, my name is Jim Mares, and I teach 11th grade English in Boston, Massachusetts. Today, I'm excited to chat with my old master's advisor, Dr. Patrick Comstock. Uh, Patrick, thanks for coming on and making some time.
1: Yeah, Jim, thanks for having me, and I'm happy to talk about teaching. Awesome.
0: Um, so let's just start with your teaching background. How did you, I think that you've had, you and I have talked a little bit about your pathway in education. Um, Mm -hmm. and let me just kick it over to you. Just tell us, you know, how you got into teaching and where, and, and where you are now.
1: Yeah. So I got into teaching. I first started thinking about it in 2005, which was my senior year of college. And like many seniors, I was sort of, um, conflicted about what to do after college and kind of had two options. There was the graduate school option and then one of my friends and track teammates started talking to me about Teach for America and initially I actually sent in my deposit to the University of Chicago to do a master's program and I said uh, no thanks to Teach for America but then I thought about it over the weekend and talked to some people in my life about that choice and I thought well you know, there's really only this one chance to go in and do teaching right away and I can always go back to grad school. So I ended up uh, switching those decisions and signing up to go to New York City and join Teach for America. And my first two years were at uh, PS 190 in Brooklyn where I taught K through five science. It was an interesting setup. I was the science teacher for the whole school. So I had 13 different classes I uh, saw the kindergarten, first, second, and third grade classes about once or twice a week, and then fourth and fifth grade classes two or three times a week. So yeah, it's you... a, uh, a busy schedule. I'm and, sure. And um, one, one thing I sort of made sure to do after the first couple of months was to have good experiments because I found that giving students something hands-on, something fun and exciting, can solve a lot of the classroom culture issues. Can solve a mm-hmm. lot of uh, sort of attention issues too. So that was my my sort of route from college into into teaching at PS one ninety.
0: That's awesome. And so, when one quick aside that I was not predicting, uh, have you listened to the podcast "Nice White Parents"?
1: I am aware of it, but okay. I haven't listened to it before.
0: I. Yeah. I ask because um, if for anyone who has listened to it, um, I imagine our audiences would overlap to the extent that I even mm-hmm. have an audience. But it's just, it's a really interesting show because I think they do a great job, but it details the history of a single public school building
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know that it was PS 190, but I imagine if you listen to that podcast, you'll have a lot of... Uh, you'll be transported back to your old school building because you mm-hmm. a lot of those school buildings in Brooklyn uh, look similarly <laughs> uh, really? and it's like a very fascinating history of um, different parents coming in and and how and how the school segregation systems kind of are have been held up over time and mm-hmm. some of the different things that anyways we're kind of getting off topic a little bit there but um, Yeah. Okay. So PS190 in Brooklyn, you're there for two years. And then what happens?
1: Well, after those two years, I decided I wanted to go to grad school, more grad school myself. So I went to divinity school at Harvard University, studied religion, ethics, and politics, where I got a master's of theological studies, just kind of their terminology for an MA in religion. So that was uh, uh, two years of just being a student, no teaching. And after those two years, I went and taught uh, eighth grade at Boston Preparatory Charter Public School, yeah, similar neck of the woods as you. And Yeah. Um, in that role, I had a few different sections of eighth grade writing, and I also taught music, which was a really cool experience for me. I was uh, sort of grew up singing, playing the guitar and playing piano. I had a little bit of sort of uh, very very amateur sort of amount of, of music talent and, and uh, skill level. But they wanted me to teach music. And I was like initially kind of resistant, but um, I ended up doing that. And it, and it turned out to be a fantastic experience. I had a, a kind of a choral ensemble, like an acapella group. And cool. learned to read music, to write their own tunes and to kind of get the, both the performance background and also kind of some music theory as well. So that was the second of uh, three K through 12 schools I've taught at. The last one was Achievement First Bushwick in uh, Brooklyn as well, where I taught fourth grade math and English. And so those are the, the three K through 12 schools. And I've taught at four higher ed institutions as well. Courses at Teachers College, at Montclair State University, and New York University, and now Relay Graduate School of Education. So seven schools in total. Uh, over the course of about 15 years or so. So I feel like I've got a sense of kind of what it's like on the ground at at both of those levels. Um, yeah. So the the school cultures and and what it uh, takes to run a successful institution.
0: Yeah. I'm curious about I'm I'm curious to talk to you a little bit about the pandemic uh because I feel like that's I I quite frankly, am not sure how to think of the pandemic moving forward. Um, but I do, I definitely think it's worth like reflecting on it and thinking about some of the lessons that we can and should take into the fall, even though, even as we're not on Zoom anymore. But, you know, you supported me through Relay um, as an instructional, a little bit of an instructional coach, but mostly just sort of, you know, mm-hmm. through class, we we had a lot of interesting and and powerful readings and discussions that that pushed my thinking in my own pedagogy so I'm just kind of curious to get your take on what it was like for you supporting supporting other teachers and relay students in the pandemic what did you notice what was surprising what was challenging anything I guess is is fair game
1: Yeah, it was certainly a really challenging year and a half. You know, I think the first year in the spring of 2020, all teachers and students were grappling with this transition from what was, in most cases, an in-person sort of typical learning experience to an online experience. And so I feel like um, we should give credit to everyone students and teachers alike for being really flexible and adaptable and making that that transition and then last year uh there were some uh unique challenges to be sure like for me in my role the glimpses I got into classrooms was through zoom was through video recordings instead of physically going into the classroom and so I think there's a you know there's some limitations to that glimpse it's not as full a picture as physically going into a classroom and experience the, experiencing the dynamic between teachers and students. But at the same time, I could see more people say in one day, and I could sort of get a broader glimpse um, in terms of how things are going when there was um, the trips around to different schools in New York City were eliminated. So there were there were some advantages and disadvantages for my role in particular. I really missed uh, in person teaching and learning, but I was always determined to make the most of it, to do the very best that we could in um, you know an atmosphere that um, we have to we have to do discussions in slightly different ways. There I think needs to be sharper protocols and uh, kind of a, a more intentional thinking about the way we. As teachers can set up discussions, and so for me, it meant using the breakout rooms function of Zoom a bit more often. you know there was a chance for people to to talk in small groups about the different things they were working on um so pedagogically, I tried to condense things and and make sure that when we gathered together as a class uh that no time was wasted and that we were really uh, making the most of that and then any extra things, any sort of independent work. Um, we could put to some other time frame that it wasn't sort of uh, during class hours. In other words, there was some flexibility when it came to what we did asynchronously and that sort of thing. But I think beyond that, you know more generally, I tried to really think about the importance of staying healthy, like eating a healthy diet, getting exercise, getting sunlight, and as sort of counterintuitive as it may seem, limiting screen time, limiting the intake of news because I think that it's really it's important to be informed, of course, but I found in my own case a lot of my energy was focused on things that were out of my control. So part of my my process in the last year or so, last year and a half is to increasingly try and focus on things that are in my sphere of influence and really up to me. And in my case, that's being a really good model, doing the best I, I can to model good facilitation strategies for teachers to come up with really interesting and engaging topics in class to make sure that uh, people feel like they're supported and learning things too and then I thought of my role as a kind of um, a way of providing some structure to people's lives I think that's part of what institutions do philosophically what schools do for teachers and students There's structure and accountability you know and so my students knew that Uh, every Thursday night we'd gather together at 6 p.m. you know we'd have a chance to learn some new things uh, develop some new skills but also reflect on how things were going and so uh, since we were kind of all all in it together in the sense of being thrust into this environment where we have to be teaching online I thought that uh, the best approach would be to learn together to kind of share out collectively some wins things that have been going really well uh, for everyone and then use some uh, collective time to brainstorm hotspots and things that have been more difficult as well. And so when we can come together and kind of crowdsource under the auspices of a class in that way, uh, that's a really exciting possibility uh, that came out of the, the pandemic time too. So we probably had similar experiences about sharing techniques with colleagues and, and that sort of thing too.
0: Yeah, I did. I think um, I pre- I really, resonate with your increasing focus on your own locus of control because Mm. um, you know I think when you are in person as a teacher there is a lot I think that was one of the hardest challenges for me as a teacher when we switch into remote learning because Mm -hmm. there are a lot of moves that you can do as a teacher in a physical classroom to push or pull or convince or prod or or just kind of help bring students along um you know like something and I feel like for me at least I and I haven't read or consumed a a ton of media about like quote unquote what it was like to teach in the pandemic but Mm -hmm. I do feel like the the media that I did here, I've, I, you know, I heard there, you know, I listened to the daily or some other podcast and they had, they did some spotlights of Odessa, Texas. Um, and I've you know, read a couple essays and, and things basically just sort of panicking a little bit on um, how sort of bad remote instruction was. Mm-hmm. And, but to me, I've, I've, I was frustrated at times, at least with like a larger scale, narrative of education because they weren't really naming why okay so to me there was like to me there was um a lot of these stories that were coming out even in the even in my the local paper like the globe and stuff we would read them and it was like well students are falling behind they're falling through the cracks and i personally didn't see enough in in a lot of those stories about why that was happening and for me it's very obvious why it's happening because when you're a teacher and you're trying to convince a high school student to read a hard text that they don't really want to read one thing that you can do is walk over near their desk and just tap your pencil on the paper right or you can you know like there's there's hundreds and hundreds of moves that teachers I think do in the classroom on a day-to-day basis that that was suddenly taken away, and um, to me, that was kind of a shame because it 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 really sort of overlooked the expertise of what of what teachers actually do, like what the actual work of teaching and learning is. Because um, I feel I feel one of the reasons I'm interested in doing this podcast is that not enough, in my view, is being said, sort of about like the the hundred set of the skill the skill set that a really skilled facilitator will have because it's not just coming up with the assignments and it's not although that is critical right and like having a great unit plan or lesson plan and and really sort of deeply internalizing Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I feel like people leave people who are not in education sort of they're thinking about what it means to be a teacher. Kind of stops at that idea, be, un, unless you've experienced teaching in some way, whether you're tutoring or you're in front of kids all the time or what have you. Like, um, I yeah, I do think that was the the not having the ability to reach students a lot in a lot more sophisticated ways and push them along and like Mm -hmm. you know having my sort of teacher moves being reduced to like texting them and saying hey you didn't turn in this homework Mm -hmm. and then seeing 50 text messages of the same thing because they're just (laughs) ignoring me like that made it really hard as a teacher in the pandemic to um, feel like you were having any sort of influence at all (laughs) you know even though you were
1: Yeah, Um, I completely agree. I think there's something that's, um, so valuable about having the physical space of the classroom as an arena for the kinds of things that we do for teaching and learning. And, uh, when we have gone to a, a situation where there's not really a shared space in the same way, then I think it does limit, uh, just as you were saying, limit, uh, The kind of skills that we can deploy when it comes to motivating students, because part of what you were talking about, I think, Jim, was how we can motivate students to do their best work. And just as you said, I think the, the ways we could do that became much more limited when it came to an exclusively online environment and so i think that we've had we've all had to think about ways to expand our skill set when it comes to to motivating students in that way too the other thing that i think is huge that that i think you alluded to is the fact that there is uh, in the classroom the the sense of a shared enterprise so the one student who's having trouble focusing can at least look around and see that other students are also reading too this is what we do here we gather to read a text and to talk about the ideas but I think one of the huge challenges of the experiment in remote education was uh, individual students re- remaining motivated and retaining that sense of motivation because you're suddenly so isolated. You can see your teacher and other students through a screen, but that physical sense of being involved in a, a shared project was missing too. So I think it was a um a tremendous challenge and I worry of course as as most teachers do about the kind of long-term effects of this and I think that um there's really while many students some students uh gained a lot from the the online experience I think for most um I might even go so far as to say uh it wasn't it wasn't um up to par I don't think it quite met the standards that we all had hoped for it and so Um, yeah I'm optimistic about the future I think that um, there's a lot of work to be done when it came Mm -hmm. to that but I think you're quite right to sort of put your finger on some of the major limitations that that the media doesn't talk about so freely and that you wouldn't really notice or know unless you had experience in the classroom working with students and so yeah
0: Yeah. I'm not here to shame any media I'm just you know I'm trying to I'm trying to but I do I do think it's valuable to kind of continue to recognize and celebrate and have some of these nuts and bolts conversations that Mm -hmm. um, that may get passed over in in one way or the other. Um,
1: Yeah I'll be in a really interesting situation this fall where the grad students I'll teach at Relay most of them will have never physically taught in a mm -hmm. classroom before Mm -hmm. and so um, it'll be their very first time so I'm preparing myself for that to sort of uh, be teaching and learning in an online space, but teaching and learning skills and knowledge that you can apply to a physical classroom space as well. So there'll be an interesting disconnect there, but I'll do my best to try and uh, to make both kind of aspects as really coherent as possible.
0: So your classes in the fall are gonna be digital?
1: Relay will be all online this okay. fall and this spring. Yeah, they've okay. made a call to do that for a number of different reasons. Um, you know, my preference is for in-person teaching and learning, and I think we'll eventually get there, but at least for the fall at Relay in New York, yeah, they're um, doing it online exclusively. But it yeah. will mean, yeah, as I said, that, that the students that I have in class, they'll all be in schools around Brooklyn and the Bronx mm-hmm. and Manhattan, presumably. Um, but we'll come together um, on Zoom for class.
0: Yeah, I think um, I'm not here to. I don't know that there's any right or wrong call there. I th- may, yeah. I'm sure I could guess, and I, I'm sure it makes sense. It, and one thing that I pro- my my first reaction to that uh, decision is like, you can always you can always decide to go in person. You can you can you can decide to go, but it, I feel like it is much harder to like start in person and then if something bad i mean the delta variant still seems to be pretty much unknown and mm-hmm. it, yeah there's a there i think i think there is a bit of a false sense of security i think there's a lot of unknown so mm-hmm. i don't know it makes sense it makes sense to me
1: one of the um ideas for me this is on the same lines of sort of post pandemic thinking and um, this would re- require a lot of political will and money, but mm-hmm. I think that creating some outdoor classroom space would be a good investment in the future. Mm-hmm. You know, even it's trickier in places like Boston and New York where it's cold a lot of the year, but mm-hmm. to have, you know, maybe on a playground or sort of an area adjacent to the schools, at least some places where people can gather outside and do teaching and learning you know present what they're they're working on some mm-hmm. uh, outdoor community space i think you know if i were if i were new york city or boston's mayor for example that might be something i would focus on doing because um yeah it would it would preserve at least a space where people could come and do some of that work if not hold like an entire school outside there would be something there
0: i i love that idea i and i agree And, you know, there's rooftops, you can go up to the rooftops, Mm -hmm. plant the gardens on the roofs. I'm all I think that I don't understand why every rooftop in New York City doesn't have a garden on top of it. But yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a good segue to talk a little bit about some of your other research interests, um, because I know that you focus a lot on mindfulness and education, which is sort of a big word. um, And. Do you, do you do you see that is that is that specific suggestion kind of coming from some of your your research in in mindfulness and education?
1: I'd say so. Yeah, I yeah. think they're connected ideas. I think um, kind of a foundational principle for me is at the bottom, educational experiences are social experiences, and so um, it's really important for me. Uh, to preserve uh, when we can a place like a physical place for students to come together but at the same time our students are uh, being educated in a pretty stressful environment and an environment where there's a premium paid on attention and so these two ideas are part of what informed my thinking about the the mindfulness and education so i you know i i was teaching from 2009 to 2010 and then I started my uh, grad program in 2010, and it seemed to me during my first couple of years there, there was this increased emphasis or popularity of mindfulness in schools. I was hearing about mindfulness this, mindfulness that, mm-hmm. to a lesser extent yoga, and then even more infrequently the word meditation that, of course, has a kind of religious connotation to it, which is mm-hmm. why I think most people talk in terms of mindfulness and yoga. So I noticed this phenomenon and more and more schools were putting in mindfulness into the classroom or the school. And I thought, well, I haven't really seen a clear articulation about why exactly this is good. What exactly about mindfulness is educative? And is there a way to express those benefits in Uh, clear and scientific terms, like the terms of psychology, the terms of philosophy, the terms of physiology. So That was what I was interested in doing, like looking at the schools that are putting mindfulness into classrooms and seeing like, well, what effect is that having? And then is there a theory for why mindfulness is beneficial? So I ended up focusing on four claims that people tend to make about mindfulness, which is that it helps attention it involves metacognition, it relieves stress and anxiety, and that it's connected to empathy. So I looked at these claims, and I looked at the research that's out there, and I tried to develop a, a theory for why those tr- those claims are true, why it is the case that mindfulness might help improve attention, help relieve stress, and help develop empathy, and so on. And So uh, that's still work I'm really interested in doing, which is essentially couching and and talking about mindfulness and meditation, the experience and the practice of those things in more rigorous and more precise terms, uh, the terms of psychology and philosophy. So um, basically, I think it's good because it gives students some skills to manage their own emotions, to manage their own thinking, and to manage their own attention. And of course, these aren't sort of silver bullet techniques, but I think to the extent that we as teachers can give our students those kinds of skills that are useful, not just in, in the classroom, but more broadly life skills to develop our own sort of thinking and awareness. And I think that's uh, you know a skill set that's really important to focus on. And if it means carving out 10 or 15 minutes even even five minutes during a day to focus on something as simple as what it feels like to sit and breathe. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we're we're doing a service to our students. We're helping them sort of developing you know to develop some self-regulation skills. And then there's also a a, a clear academic benefit to this too. Um, I personally started meditating, practicing mindfulness in about 2010. So it was right in the middle of my third year of teaching. And I noticed that it made me a better teacher because I was a little bit more patient in my responses to students. There was a kind of gap between what I what I heard or saw and then my response to it, which was a healthy uh, gap or a healthy space to open up. And then I also noticed that it made me a better reader and writer. I could focus mm-hmm. a little bit more on what I wanted to say if I was writing, and remember to to really. I would be able to read a line or a paragraph and really remember it after that. And I think that was just uh, uh, owing to a practice as simple as just sitting and focusing on the breathing process for a couple of minutes each day. So I try not to overthink it, but that's basically the sort of area I've been working in is the ways um, teachers teach mindfulness and what sort of practices are most helpful for students.
0: This has always been something that I've been I've been fascinated with because it feels like the kind of thing that um you you have me convinced that it's like very essential you know what I mean but also it feels like the kind of thing that can be deprioritized in the midst of like high stakes testing and and whatever curriculum maps and sort of like feels like the kind of thing that people would say oh yeah I know this is really important it'd be great if we could do it but today we gotta like instead Mm -hmm. we gotta read about like you know
1: cover the material
0: yeah well so what would you say to um what recommendations you have for me personally or just any teacher who might be interested in like implementing um not just implementing like a mindfulness practice because I feel like it could be either counterintuitive or just not successful if you if you sort of view it as like a checklist type of thing to do that takes away from your quote-unquote instructional time how could how how would you suggest sort of reframing or thinking about some of these mindfulness practices um for teachers uh and I and I have in mind high school students but I guess it could be any students um as as like a as like a a foundational and very normalized part of their classroom culture and classroom experience?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And um, I have a couple of thoughts on that. One would be to try and keep things short and simple. I think initially any more than five minutes or so might be too much before students have really fully bought in. And uh, you've probably had the experience of setting a timer for five minutes and doing nothing but focusing on your breath, it feels like a really long time. Mm-hmm. And so that sense of of keeping things small at first is really important. The second thing is I, would, I wouldn't want teachers uh, who aren't sort of themselves fully committed to it and, and interested in doing it to lead mindfulness exercises. That might be kind of counterproductive. I think mm-hmm. it would be, you know, if I were a principal, I would basically say you know these are practices that you can do uh with with your own choice and if it's not something that you feel like you want to lead and do in your classroom then that's totally fine because kids yeah you and i both know that kids really are expert at uh sussing out posers people who are fake don't really know what they're doing fake news yeah 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 yeah. so keeping (laughs) it short keeping it something that um you know, a a teacher or leader really feels like they want to do. And then finally getting students involved and invested, I think is really important too. Like in my case, I would ask for volunteers to ring the bell. We would have kind of a singing bowl to signal the start of the couple minutes of mindfulness and then Mm -hmm. uh, the finish as well. And so students like taking on uh, that kind of leadership role in in running that. And so I think, you know, in, in my experience, just talking about that time as time to uh, focus on our mental health to try and do what we can in the same way we would exercise our bodies you can think of this as a kind of exercise for the mind and in the same way that we can go down to the gym and get stronger bodies by exercising them we can get stronger minds by doing mental exercises like that too so Mm -hmm. i would try to get students interested and invested first give them leadership roles and then basically you know in the fourth grade setting that I taught in, we would have it as a part of our morning meeting. So every single morning, or sometimes in the afternoon meeting, there was just a a spot, a couple of minutes carved out where students knew what to expect. They knew it was coming. And once it's uh, sort of been woven into the daily schedule like that, uh, it becomes a more familiar part. And in my experience, actually, in skipping over those mindfulness minutes, students would often say, hey, wait wait a second. We, you know we were, went right into the quiz but we skipped our our meditation and so <laughs> once that happens um you know it seems like a pretty solid feature of the the regular classroom routine by the way this it does work to some extent work um in my view it's it's worth putting in a few minutes of mindfulness in a zoom class as well yeah. um it's a little bit stranger because just as we were talking about we're not sharing the same physical space so Everyone's got their own kind of independent distractions at home in whatever mm-hmm. room they're in, but it's actually kind of a nice analog to the way we all have our own independent distractions in our minds too. Even if we were physically sitting together in a room, focusing on our breathing, our minds would be doing different things. Mm-hmm. They would be having different patterns. So it's not all that different. But when I I lead a sort of a couple of minutes of mindfulness on a Zoom session, I usually ask people to turn their cameras off and then sit. I'll have a couple of instructions and we sort of uh, participate in that way. So I think it's well worth doing. It's uh, yeah. As, as you said, the the first thing that gets deprioritized, along with typically art and music and mm-hmm. EE and these sorts of things. But I would say that it's a, it's a good investment in the sense of time you spend every day uh, training attention and teaching our students how to train their attention Mm -hmm. is time that will be uh gotten back later on as students begin and we begin to do things more efficiently
0: Mm -hmm. i mean yeah you've you certainly got me sold you sold me a couple years ago on the etymology routine and uh that was (laughs) really that was really (laughs) successful so i think you're definitely going to have an impact on on my classroom in boston still um could just to, just to sort of get super clear on this could you one of the one of the things I am trying to do with the podcast is is be is when we can to sort of be really really actionable um, mm-hmm. and you I think you sort of listen to that I, I feel like I'm 90% there but could you could you like really concretely illustrate how the routine works was it like kids walk into the room do you do any framing do you immediately how do you literally get how much time passes and then Mm -hmm. do you make other announcements? I'm just curious to to see like very sort of concretely how the routine works in order to help people think about how it might work in their own classroom space.
1: Totally. Yeah. I can describe how I've woven in some mindfulness practices into my teaching typically uh, in the context of the chronology of a class, I think it's gonna do about 10 or 15 minutes into the class. In mm-hmm. my experience doing it ver- in the first couple of minutes, people are still coming in, getting settled. There's still like a lot of activity. So typically my classes will start with like a do now or some uh, activity for the first couple of minutes. So then I'll speak, provide some framing for the class an agenda, some mm-hmm. objectives for a couple of minutes. And then about 10 or 15 minutes in, we'll take a couple of minutes and do some mindfulness practices. I like to provide a kind of menu. So, you know, we have the terms meditation and mindfulness, and I think of these as umbrella terms that cover a lot of different sub practices and sub skills. And so, uh, on one particular day, I might have a minute or two of narration of one particular sub skill, say breathing in long and out short, for example, okay. or breathing in short and out long, for example. And then a different sub skill or a different technique the next day. So that there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of, yeah, uh, you know, it's a, a whole toolkit of possible things you can do rather than just one method. Um, always set a timer. I found that to be uh, really indispensable when it comes to practicing with a class and practicing on your own. Because when there's a timer, you can talk yourself into doing it even when it's hard. Because mm-hmm. make no mistake, this is really hard stuff. It's our mind's natural tendency to just wander. And the practice of bringing it back and back and back over and over again is hard work. But it gets easier. And so there are ways to kind of talk yourself into doing something that's hard. It's easier to do that when there's a kind of a countdown clock and you know there's just two more minutes left or three more minutes left. Uh, whereas if it's just open-ended, you're saying, Oh, I'm gonna meditate for an hour. I think it's more likely that you'll get demoralized. Or at least personally speaking, mm-hmm. I was more likely to get demoralized when it was open-ended that way. So about 10 or 15 minutes into the class, I usually give some introductory framing, set a timer. And then typically uh it's useful to have some kind of instructions. And so typically, my instructions might be to just close your eyes, find a good posture for your body take a minute to check in with how your body feels and then bring your attention to your breathing and try and breathe in a way that feels really good really comfortable really useful Mm -hmm. and that's basically the content of the instructions you know typically in in my case I'll stay with the breath for like two breaths two really good breaths and I'll be thinking about like what I got to do later or like Mm -hmm. what happened two weeks ago then the idea is just to Focus back on the breath and repeat that process again. And so based on what I know, this is operating at a physiological level. You're getting more oxygen into your body. You're lowering your blood pressure and your heart rate. But then at a psychological level, you're giving your mind an object to focus on something that can get it out of those narratives and pull it back to kind of like an anchor in the present moment. And so, uh, kind of offer some reasons that it might be worth spending the couple minutes doing that. And then when the bell goes off, maybe take a minute or two to decompress. Often I like to give people the chance to write down in a journal what they experienced or talk about it with a friend. And then we go right into the, the lesson for the day. So I think it's something that uh, doesn't have to take a lot of time and it's something that yeah can, can fit right into the kind of morning or afternoon routine in most classes. Yeah, I love that. I
0: think, um, I think it's especially important, because I, 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 there's a lot of talk about, about, um, you know, attention span, especially Mm. for kids who who are growing up as sort of digital natives, and, um, you know, I have I scrolled through TikTok today for 45 minutes because <laughs> I have been living in a pandemic for a year and a, so I do, and I do think, I, and I'm concerned. I I am concerned for my own mental health and and the ways in which my own attention. Um, I heard a good metaphor, basically of like thinking about your attention in terms of uh, nutrients, right? Mm-hmm. And so, if you eat if you spend an hour on, on TikTok, like that's similar to eating.
1: Well, you're consuming,
0: you know, you're consuming 2000 calories of Ben and Jerry's and that might not Ah. make you feel, that might not make you feel great at the end of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, that immediately got me to be like, okay, I'm done. Um, But I, but I do think, um, I do want to start having better and sort of more informed conversations with my students about, their own ability to regulate all the things that you were naming, including attention, stress. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I I think when a lot, when so many educational tools and resources and and sort of content does exist online, it can be hard to differentiate between, you know, when I was in college and high school, I had my, the internet, social media, sort of garbage fun stuff, that was all on Facebook and I could log in and and surf the pictures and everything. And then I had my bookshelf with my hard copy books and my binders and my notebooks and there was like a very clear delineation between between those two sort of areas of where I was spending my time. Yeah. But I feel like that that e- literally just the physical delineation of like you take notes on an iPad for an hour and a half, and then you use that same iPad to scroll through Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or whatever it is. And, and that can be challenged. It can, it's challenging for me as, as, as an adult. And I know that it's, many of my students have um, expressed the same type of, of challenge and they want to not have that be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't, they don't often have, clear vocabulary and tools and ideas to to move away from it um so I, i think this could be very empowering
1: totally that's so interesting um i think yeah it seems to me that we don't really have the right language or vocabulary to talk about this yet it seems like maybe one word is like the modality of learning like when the modality of an iPad of your class, is the same as what you check your TikTok on, is what the same as what you you know scroll through Instagram on. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of uh, confusion maybe there for students that you can't separate the kind of modalities or at least the kind of, um, I don't know, maybe the space that you're operating in as a student. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of blurring of the lines between the school space and then my private social media space. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's so interesting because I think that, I don't know. Did other words come to mind or other sort of ways of talking about that uh, conflict? Because, yeah, uh, I think everyone who's a teacher or a student has has experienced what you're articulating, this kind of like uh, all of the modalities of learning and, and sort of our social lives have been sort of uh, put into the one um, yeah. kind of the, the one screen, whereas you know, before an educational experience meant like walking down the hallways to see friends and teachers and mm-hmm. different classrooms, seeing different things on the walls, talking to different people. Um, and there's a kind of a um, kind of a funneling in process that that I'm seeing into the one one kind of um, way of accessing others. That I think, yeah, you're right. That we should we should develop a more robust kind of way of talking about this to to bring it to to light.
0: I think yeah, I mean I think so. I I don't personally have like a clear set of vocabulary or framework to talk about this, but yeah. I certainly I I certainly think it's worth teachers investing the time and, and having honest, clear conversations with students because um, you know, in terms of in terms of conflict, what what I would worry about as a teacher is this this constant idea of sort of shame or judgment that the teacher places on the student right mm-hmm. so the you, student comes to you they're struggling they are missing a ton of assignments and you ask the kid well like i i've done this myself i've 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 heard other uh, other teachers say it like well what'd you do from you know five to nine p.m and it's like all right well i went home got a bite to eat and i was on TikTok for two hours and then I started the homework and uh, immediately sort of right then the teacher will jump in and say, well, just look at what happened. The solution's very obvious. It's right in front of you. So on and so forth. Like yeah. TikTok is worthless and and you don't need it. And and if you had spent this time on your algebra homework, instead of spending on your TikTok, like be problems, better. yeah, problem, <laughs> problem solved, you know, but I do think like, it is a lot more complicated than that because it's not it's not so easy for a student or even as an adult to just kind of decide to put their phone away or just I, I think we establish these mental pathways these neurological pathways that form habits and that is what a lot of times that's what you repeat and it's what you do and i i even though it's on, even though it's sort of self-contained on a phone and it sort of seems easy to say, just put the phone in the dresser and open up your math textbook. I, I think it's worth understanding that that's not, it's not quite as simple as that.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. The, and that's why I think the institution of school in classes can help mitigate some of that because mm-hmm. there's a kind of collective energy and a collective motivation that comes about when you you're there in the in the presence of others doing the same thing, so maybe that means that as teachers, to the extent that we can find like ways of replicating that in the online space, whether that's breakout rooms or you know what have you, um, that seems like a good sort of at least one way of thinking about getting students to retain that kind of motivation. Because yeah, what you say resonates with me too. I think. I've heard reports of some of my uh, friends and, and colleagues going back to the office, working at a dedicated space physically and uh, they feel much better because there's a sense of camaraderie. There's a sense of people being in the same space, doing the same sorts of things. So I think that, yeah, we, we've gone through a kind of an unnatural educational experience uh, yeah. when it comes to the pandemic. And uh, I think that, well, Uh, speaking personally here. I think we really owe it to our students to get back on track and give them the experience that they deserve. Otherwise we, uh, we're, uh, at the risk of selling short their potential, you know, just because they happen to be born at a certain year, uh, doesn't mean they shouldn't be able to, to really, really blossom. So I think that you and I will have, and others will have our work cut out for us, um, educators, but I think we always have
0: yeah um I agree so before we before we close out i think we've we've covered a lot of ground here but yeah. I, I don't know if I prepped you this for prepped you for this, but I imagine you'll be able to handle this task with without issue um to close out the podcast what i've what I've been asking people to do is to talk about a teacher that they personally had who really changed their life and influenced them and so If I bring up that topic for you, who comes to mind?
1: I've felt fortunate to have a lot of really good teachers, even though I went to kind of decent, mediocre public schools in Virginia. I had a lot of standout teachers. And so when I saw these questions, I had to think a little bit about who I would talk about. But a college professor actually comes to mind. Is that Okay to talk yeah about or absolutely, yeah. I
0: think yeah, we can have we can have a broad definition of of teacher, uh, totally. but I think absolutely, I think a college professor fits the bill,
1: yeah, a lot of his pedagogical moves are moves that I took and put in the k through twelve space, um, mm-hmm. and so Hans Tiefel was this professor's name. he taught at the College of William and Mary in Virginia, and he he was a religious studies professor. And I studied uh, religion. I changed my major to religious studies my sophomore year because I had a really cool class where all the teachers in the department came and lectured on their specialty. And so um, Hans Tiefel taught a class called Medicine and Ethics or Bioethics. And the legend was that God would get an A in his class. Jesus, Muhammad, the Buddha, the prophets would get B's, and then ordinary students could only get C. So he had a reputation for being really rigorous, being kind of fearsome. And so I thought about this. I was like, do I really want to tangle with this professor? I thought about it, talked to some people, and I was like, well, this is what I came to college for. And so I enrolled in his class, and it was very difficult. He was a rigorous teacher, and many students uh dropped the class after the first couple of weeks. But once we got into, you know, kind of the class that was going to be there for the rest of the semester, it was an incredible educational experience um, for a couple of reasons. One, he taught me the power of language and to really pay attention to the words and phrases that we're using when we're speaking, we're reading, because that actually often provides a, a window into someone's worldview, the language that we use. We can kind of uh, identify the assumptions and implications that underlie the language, and so his his favorite phrase was to analyze and evaluate. And so, a lot of the work we did in class was to look at a sentence of a text or even a phrase and look at what implications there are, what assumptions there are, and to say whether or not we agree or disagree with it. So, that move of analyzing and evaluating a little chunk of text. Is uh, kind of the fundamental skill that that he taught me that I still uh, still use on a daily basis. The other two teacher moves that I thought were really skillful for his part is he always had a reading quiz every class, so that was a great way to ensure that students actually do the reading when you know that you're going to be held accountable for that. And one of the things that was a real curveball in his class was group papers. So every week. There were small groups of three or four students and we had to write together a one or two page paper. In most cases, it was analyzing and evaluating a a sentence from the text. And uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to write a paper as a group but it's a difficult thing to do. It can be, yes. There's kind of a a few levels of education going on. There's like the construction of the content of the paper, but then also the group dynamics, you know, the kind of negotiation of what gets said and how it gets said. And uh, working on that with others, I think made me a better group member, I think, but it also made me think harder about, um, yeah, my contributions to a group and, and making things especially clear, and so I think the the reading quizzes it it shows that you're serious as a teacher, and you assign some some reading, and you know your students are expected to at least retain some of that sends a kind of message about uh, you know the the level of expectations you have as a as a teacher. Mm-hmm. And then I guess I, the main thing I got from him that I that I try and replicate is that he had fun teaching. There was the sense as a student, even with his sort of fearsome reputation, he was smiling and clearly having a good time when it came to talking about even pretty serious, even pretty fraught issues. There was always the sense that uh, this is really what he enjoyed doing and something that was his vocation and, and passion and life's calling. And so I've always tried to channel that when it comes to my own teaching as well to to keep in mind that we're exploring ideas here. We're we're gaining new skills, gaining new knowledge, and uh, this can be a fun process too. It doesn't have to be so heavy. Uh, and so that's something I've tried to keep in, in mind when I'm teaching ever since.
0: I, I think that's great, I'm sure. Uh, hopefully he gets a chance to listen to this. Maybe you can you hey. can send it to him and, and yeah. fast forward it. Um I think that's that's really important. And um yeah, so for anyone out there who's hesitant on reading quizzes, maybe this will push you. <laughs>
1: um
0: all right. Well, Dr. Patrick Comstock, Relay Graduate School of Education. Patrick, thank you so much for this conversation.
1: Jim, thank um, you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: All right. Well uh, like subscribe, share, do all those things. And, uh, hopefully, hopefully you'll, you'll keep sticking around and listening and, um, we'll see you later.